Hi, and welcome back to A Feminist Therapist, the podcast where politics meets mental health. I'm your host, David Averick, psychotherapist and social worker, broadcasting to you from Baltimore, Maryland. This podcast proposes that the toxic aspects of America's social and political culture are directly linked to the increases we're seeing in rates of depression and anxiety, particularly in young people. Today's installment does not really require a trigger warning. Also, sorry if my voice sounds weird today. I have one of those summer colds that won't go away. But anyway, let's jump right in. Wouldn't universal healthcare be neat? The kind where everybody gets access to preventive services, starting with prenatal care and up through hospice? There's bound to be some rationing, of course, and that sucks, but still, wouldn't it beat our current system? Or how about universal, high-quality childcare, like they're working on up in Quebec? Or free public education all the way through grad school, like they have in Sweden? Or how about enough affordable housing to go around so that we no longer have to live in a country where mentally ill people die in the streets and families live in shelters and people with no options have to trade sex for housing and victims of domestic violence have to stay with their abusers due to the unaffordability of rental units. Conservatives take pleasure in mocking these ideas as a quote-unquote socialist utopia, but I think another way of describing them is to call it a country where fundamental human rights are respected. Because personally, I think that housing, healthcare, and education all count as human rights. Do you think so too? Take a second and really ask yourself. Because if you do think so, then it's important to be able to say so. Because in terms of politics, if you're not willing to say out loud that human rights are important, then it's pretty useless for you to think so. For example, take a second and repeat after me, out loud, in real life, right now. Affordable housing is a human right. Really, go ahead, say it out loud. I'll wait. Did you hesitate? Does saying that feel weird? If so, and not just because you're riding the subway or something, then we should take that hesitancy as proof of how far to the right the center of American political culture currently is. Because that statement, that affordable housing is a human right, is not a leftist statement. It is a politically centrist statement. How do you know? Article 25 of the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights, which was ratified and adopted by our country 70 years ago, reads in part, quote, Everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and of his family, including food, clothing, housing, and medical care, and necessary social services, end quote. So housing being a human right only sounds leftist in the context of a political culture that has swung freakishly far to the right. So far to the right, in fact, that we feel an internal sense of awkwardness, shame, or even fear of participating in political extremism when we state factual truths, like for instance, that healthcare and affordable housing are human rights. Because actually, that those things are rights have been an established factual truth for about seven decades by this point. If you checked out episode one of A Feminist Therapist, you may remember our parable of the two little fish who don't know what water is. We use that parable to explain the idea of structural forces, powerful but invisible elements that surround us and determine the shape and feel of our world, but which we may not be consciously aware of. I would like to propose that radical regressive conservatism is one such structural force. Obviously, it's not only invisible, it's definitely right there in the policies we're seeing come out of the Trump White House, but radical regressive conservatism is also something that we have internalized, taken inside of us, and which guides our thinking in ways large and small to where we don't even notice it. 
the fact that, for example, it can feel challenging for us to name affordable housing as a non-negotiable and fundamental human right demonstrates that the battle of ideas around this issue has pretty much been fought and won by conservatives. We know this not only because there are no real policies addressing America's housing affordability crisis, but also because we've reached a point where reasonable people feel too timid to say out loud that access to affordable housing ought to be guaranteed. Personally, I'm not interested in letting conservatives make me feel ashamed to say things that I know are true. Okay, so what does this have to do with mental health or feminism? Recall from our previous discussions about the definitions of feminism, that feminism as a theory has to do with interrogating the terms of the discussion, refusing to take for granted what gets said and by whom, figuring out who's setting the agenda, which voices are privileged, which are silenced, and most of all, who benefits from the status quo. All that stuff counts as feminism. So, for instance, when we notice that it feels awkward for us to claim that affordable housing is a human right, Asking why it is that it's awkward, where that hesitancy comes from, that's feminism. We're questioning the terms of the conversation, and we're challenging them when they're illegitimate. Now let's ask who benefits when the Democratic Party, supposedly representing the left side of American politics, fails to defend human rights. Because let's be honest, most Democratic lawmakers are not out there talking about affordable housing as a human right. Okay, the main beneficiaries of that failure are the people who would be the ones paying for it, which is to say the billionaire class, the 0.1% of wealthiest individuals. Time for some real talk. Like it or not, taxing the hell out of these households is necessary in order to generate the revenue needed to guarantee human rights in our country. Of course, taxing the rich isn't the only source of revenue that we'll need. Reparations from the fossil fuel industry will definitely be a part of that transition as well, but Fundamentally, over the next couple decades, our entire economy has to be restructured away from extractivism and towards whatever's next. Extractivism is a way to describe the orientation of our late capitalist economy, which relies on the one-sided and unsustainable extraction of petrochemicals from the ground and of profit from workers. As for what all this has to do with mental health, the answer there is two-pronged. The first prong is about how it affects your mental health when your human rights get violated. We've already explored this idea a little bit, and we'll go even deeper in future episodes, but basically it turns out that not having affordable housing or healthcare or quality education predisposes you in all kinds of ways to ending up with mental health diagnoses such as depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. That's not the same thing as saying that not having those things causes those mental health problems. It's saying that it creates a structural predisposition or vulnerability to acquiring those problems. The second part of it has to do with the mental health of the 0.1% themselves, the billionaire class. By the way, probably you already know that a billion dollars equals a thousand million dollars, but I'm saying it because sometimes it's easy to forget that that's how much money some people have. Anyway, these are the folks, the several thousand households, who together hold as much wealth as the bottom 90% of households in this country. So let's take a peek inside their heads and see what's up. What are billionaires about? They are about two things, getting money and keeping money. 
The first part is pretty straightforward, but we shouldn't underestimate their skills. Liberal economist Joseph Stiglitz points out that nearly all the growth in America's national wealth over the past few decades has gone entirely to the top 1% of the economy. Of that growth in wealth going to the top 1%, fully half has gone to the top 0.1%. So the first question is, where does their money come from? About 30% of it comes from wages and salaries, so-called active forms of income, while 70% accrues to them through passive forms of income, like profits, rents paid, dividends, interest, and capital gains. Those are finance words used to describe types of money that you can get just from owning stuff. Okay, so that's how the wealthiest get their money, but how do they keep it? For this, they have two main strategies. The first consists of using their money to buy political influence with lawmakers in order to get them to, for example, pass legislation like the recent Republican tax bill, which was a total giveaway to the billionaire class and handsomely rewards extremely wealthy people with substantial savings at tax time. According to some analyses, this bill will also raise taxes on the middle class down the line. This process of enabling the wealthy to capture elected officials was facilitated by the Citizens United Supreme Court decision back in 2010, but probably you already know that our political system is set up so that wealthy people have infinitely more influence over lawmakers than non-wealthy people. The second strategy that wealthy people use to keep their money is they do stuff at tax time to reduce the amount of their wealth that is considered taxable. This activity can be both legal and illegal. When it's legal, it's known as tax avoidance, and it's basically what CPAs do for a living. Everybody who has any money does tax avoidance, and it's not immoral or against the law. Reducing your tax burden by illegal means, on the other hand, is known as tax evasion, and wealthy people do this too, even though it's a felony. Using offshore tax shelters or tax havens is the most popular method to do this. That's when you try to hide your money in a country like Monaco that has very low taxes, or you shift your money into what's called a shell corporation, and the corporation moves the money to a country like the Cayman Islands that has a very low corporate tax rate. Remember the Panama Papers? It turns out that millionaires and billionaires engage in lots of tax evasion. Of course, they're not the only people that don't pay their taxes, but because they have the most money, their evasion matters more. According to the liberal think tank Demos, between 2001 and 2010, the feds estimated that they lost out on $3 trillion due to tax evasion. You know what else cost $3 trillion? Getting a nice start on paying for universal health care. Evading taxes is a crime, just like selling drugs is a crime. We socially construct selling drugs as more harmful to society than tax evasion, but is it really? I'm not so sure. And I also think it's unfair that a low-income person of color is far more likely to have her or his liberty taken away and get put in prison for selling drugs than it is for a millionaire or billionaire to get locked up for engaging in tax fraud, which starves the system of money that's needed for housing, healthcare, and education. By the way, it probably goes without saying that most billionaires are cisgender, heterosexual, white males. Okay, quick sidebar to acknowledge once again that I, too, am a white male. As a queer Jew, I am a sexual and religious minority, but I'm still a white cisgender male, and crucially, I have the ability to hide my minority statuses if I need to so I can pass as hetero or Christian. Not that I would want to, but I can, unlike a woman or a person of color. My voice is a white person's voice and a man's voice, and these things bestow on me an illegitimate legitimacy that I need to be conscious of. 
My experience as being both an accepted member of society's empowered groups while simultaneously and secretly being an outsider has completely informed my perspective on many of these political issues. So what I'm saying is I don't seek to represent any minority communities and I definitely do not represent all feminists. But I do seek to be accountable to these communities because I'm out here talking about issues that affect them. This podcast is not so different from what I do in my day job as a therapist, which is I'm presenting narratives, and you're invited to see yourself in the narrative or not. You can call BS or you can buy in. Also, part of having white male privilege is being bad at remaining conscious of it when I ought to, and then being called back in by the people that I'm in community with. So if I'm blowing it, then please call me in. Let me know. I want to hear and understand the ways in which I'm getting stuff wrong here. It's also worth mentioning that I personally do not have any particular hatred, anger, or dislike toward cisgender, hetero, white, Christian males. Plenty of my clients fall into that specific category. And far from hating them, I love them the way that I love all my clients. But I do hold them to a high standard, which is to say the exact standard that their social group has set for all minorities in society, including me. Okay, back to mental health. So, historically, if you had behaviors or desires or ancestry that were socially constructed as bad or wrong, then you ran the risk of ending up in a situation where cisgender hetero white males with stethoscopes could diagnose you with a mental illness and then proceed to violate your human rights. If you need a reminder on what social construction is, check out episode 2. But the basic definition has to do with noticing what a particular group of people thinks about a particular thing at a particular time. So now we're going to look at three examples of this historical phenomenon. Have you ever heard of the mental illness called drapedomania? It was invented in the 19th century by noted American doctor and dickhead Samuel Cartwright to describe the inexplicable behavior of slaves who tried to escape from plantations. I'm not kidding. Their behavior was so illogical to Cartwright that it was evidence of a mental illness, and he called this drapedomania. His recommended cure for this mental illness was to treat slaves with more cruelty so they wouldn't get confused and start thinking that they were human. This is a terrifying example of how mental health depends on who's calling the shots. In the antebellum South, slavery was socially constructed as beneficial for everyone involved, including the slaves. For a slave to be like, uh, no, I'm gonna go now, was therefore evidence of mental illness. One prominent defender of slavery and contemporary of Cartwright's, our nation's seventh vice president, John C. Calhoun, said, quote, Never before has the black race of Central Africa, from the dawn of history to the present day, attained a condition so civilized and so improved, not only physically, but morally and intellectually, end quote. Here we have a clear example of how racism is baked into the core of our political system. John C. Calhoun was a vice president under two presidents. 35 years before saying that, at the time of George Washington's death, that founding father owned 123 slaves that he left to his wife Martha, who owned even more slaves than he did. Here's George Washington talking about a military campaign he once planned against the Iroquois nation. He wanted, quote, the total destruction and devastation of their settlements and the capture of as many prisoners of every age and sex as possible. It will be essential to ruin their crops now in the ground and prevent their planting more, end quote. Now here's founding father Thomas Jefferson talking publicly about people of African descent. Quote, In imagination they are dull, tasteless, and anomalous. End quote. 
He also said that people of African descent were, quote, in reason, much inferior, end quote. This is how our founding fathers thought about black people and native people. And it's in that context that Dr. Dickhead came up with his idea of drapedomania. Jefferson, meanwhile, had six kids with his slave, Sally Hemings, who was 30 years younger than him. And for some reason, people pretend that this was a consensual relationship. That's a toughie for me to get behind, because Hemings was Jefferson's property. So it's hard to understand how consent could have worked in that quote-unquote relationship. And also, raping your slaves was common practice back then, partly because around the time this country was founded, in general, people of all social classes were really violent compared to people today, and they did things like torture their political opponents, duel to the death, beat the crap out of one another in the streets, and of course, abuse their wives and children. The historian Ruth Block has written about how, quote, the American Revolution contributed to a decline in the state's willingness to intervene on behalf of victims of domestic violence. Okay, why am I on this tangent? The reason that we're looking at how wealthy white founding fathers thought about black people and native people and women and violence is so that we can call BS on the conservative legal philosophy known as originalism. Originalism is most closely associated with the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, as well as current justices Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch. And it's all about interpreting the Constitution as our founding fathers thought about it at the time it was written. As you can see, originalism involves pretending really hard that all that stuff about rape and violence and slavery and genocide didn't figure at all into how the framers of the Constitution understood the world and whether laws ought to apply equally and whether human rights ought to be worth half a damn. Washington and Jefferson's views on what we would now call human rights, women's rights, and indigenous rights are a part of originalism, and pretending that they're not is intellectually dishonest. You don't get to pick and choose what parts of people's worldviews matter and which do not. George Washington would probably have been way into Samuel Cartwright's definition of drapedomania, given that, as documented by Erica Armstrong Dunbar in her book Never Caught, Washington spent a bunch of money on failed attempts to recapture one of his own escaped slaves, Ona Judge. The United States Constitution is a product of its time and place, and it needs to be updated to reflect an evolving standard of decency. Nothing too crazy, of course, but in order to live in a country that we're proud of, I think it's crucial to build political power to where we can jump in there and make a few changes. A good start would be abolishing the Electoral College, radically reforming campaign finance, giving the Second Amendment a haircut, and guaranteeing a woman's right to have an abortion. Okay. Quiz time. Do you think that a woman has a right to an abortion? Are you willing to say out loud that we need a constitutional amendment guaranteeing that right? Because frankly, it's the only way to stop the right wing from eating away at Roe versus Wade like little carpenter ants. Trump's new Supreme Court might overturn Roe versus Wade pretty soon anyhow. It's time to start talking out loud about a constitutional amendment to protect a woman's right to choose. But do you know who's currently really close to being able to call a constitutional convention of their own? Conservatives. According to Article 5 of the Constitution, if two-thirds of state legislatures call for a convention to amend the Constitution, they get one. Republicans currently control 32 state legislatures. Two-thirds of 50 is 34. They're close, and don't think they won't do it. Okay, getting back on track. Our second example of how the social construction of mental health impacts human rights is how, until 1974, being gay was a mental illness listed in the DSM. That is because of homophobia, of course, which is a feature of the social construction of sexuality. What I mean there is, 
when heterosexuality is socially constructed as the only form of appropriate sexual behavior, it creates a system in which not being hetero is considered bad. How we socially construct sexuality determines sexual minorities' experiences in society and in their families and inside their own heads and hearts. And because social construction changes over time, we can see how some queer people, specifically cisgender middle-class queer people like myself, are having an easier go of being gay in America over the last few years as public attitudes have shifted. But back when homophobia was institutionalized in medicine and the courts, being gay was considered clear evidence of mental illness and was also a crime. Plenty of people still think that way, by the way. But back when the state thought that way, the medical and legal systems went to great lengths to make gay people into straight people. Gay people used to receive quote-unquote treatments such as lobotomies and hormone injections and insulin shock therapy. Some of this was coercive, a feature of the judicial system, and some was imposed on minor children by their parents, while in many other cases gay people themselves asked for these types of treatments. You see, they wanted to be hetero because they had bought into the extreme homophobia that they were exposed to in society. This is an example of what's called internalized oppression, which is when the homophobia or racism or misogyny or transphobia or anti-Semitism in society infects the way you think about yourself from a young age. Believe me, it'll fuck you up. It's a key concept that we're going to explore in greater depth later on, and it's also an example of a serious social problem that cisgender white-skinned Christian males never have to worry about, and so claim is not a real problem. Quick sidebar, have you heard about those new computer programs that supposedly can tell whether you're gay based on your facial features? Don't you wish we could just stick Mike Pence in one of those real quick, just to confirm what everyone already knows? Anyway, our third and final example of how the social construction of mental health has been used for political purposes to violate the human rights of people with less power is America's forced sterilization program that took place in the first half of the 20th century. This program is basically an example of what happens when well-intentioned people who have power get to design social policies governing the lives of people who don't have power. Conservatives enjoy pointing out that America's eugenics and sterilization movement took place during the so-called progressive era of American politics, and they use that to argue against progressivism and what they like to call quote-unquote social engineering. Social engineering is the phrase conservatives use to mock and discredit any efforts to improve society which don't consist of cutting rich people's taxes. Of course, they are definitely correct that many horrible crimes have been perpetrated by people with power claiming to improve society. The difference between the eugenics movement and current progressive efforts to improve society is the difference between theory and data. Unlike in the 1920s, nowadays progressives rely on peer-reviewed data and actual social science research grounded in established scientific norms as well as ethics to figure out what are the best improvements to make and how to implement those policies. Relying on research to craft public policy is known as being a technocrat. But back then, policymakers did not use these tools to guide them because these tools did not exist. That distinction is lost on conservatives who hate social science data as much as they hate climate science data. That's because both of these data sets spell doom for their political agenda. 
Back to sterilization. In America during the 20th century, about 65,000 people, mostly women, were sterilized against their will, including for behaviors like having sex out of wedlock or having epilepsy or being deaf. Other sterilizations were punitive, which means that they were imposed on people by the state for committing certain crimes of moral turpitude, including theft. So here we can see how committing a crime is socially constructed as evidence of a heritable mental illness. One fascinating thing about this policy is that white-collar crimes were excluded in the statute from the list of offenses that could get you a state-sponsored vasectomy. It's funny how that works. I wonder whether rich people had anything to do with how that law got written. If that sounds unfair, it is. But actually, not much has changed. These days, whether you go to jail for committing a crime has more to do with how much money you have in the bank than anything else. It reminds me of the old Yiddish saying that goes, which means big thieves are pardoned, little thieves get hanged. The journalist Glenn Greenwald wrote an entire book about this phenomenon called With Liberty and Justice for Some. I highly recommend this book because it lays out very clearly the way that we have a two-tiered justice system in our country, one for wealthy elites and one for the poor. It's a crucial analysis for understanding how our society really functions and why we have so many people in prison compared to every other country in the world. Though inequality is a baked-in part of our judicial system since the founding of our country, Greenwald traces a new, particularly evil strain of judicial inequality to Gerald Ford's pardoning of Richard Nixon. This is what set the stage for Obama to not prosecute the war crimes committed by Donald Rumsfeld and George W. Bush, and probably for Mike Pence's upcoming pardon of Donald Trump. Greenwald's point is that nowadays, people are no longer surprised when the rich and powerful don't get held accountable for the crimes they commit. We no longer even expect the system to be fair. Alright, so what can we learn from our three examples? Escaped slave syndrome, state-sponsored sterilization, and forced lobotomies of gay people. The point is that it's whoever's in power that gets to decide what a mental illness is and how best to treat it. So now we're ready to start tying our different strands together by looking at the social construction of wealth. Within late capitalism, which is our current economic model, having a billion dollars is socially constructed as a really good thing. I would go so far as to say that in contemporary American society, acquiring a billion dollars is considered to be one of the best things that you can possibly do ever. But pretend for a second that we lived in a social culture that valued human rights more than the acquisition of financial resources. In that hypothetical society, having a billion dollars would be thought of quite differently. The negative impact of having that much money would stand out more than the positive aspects. And perhaps because having a billion dollars is so unusual, it would even be looked on as some rare form of mental illness. In a human rights-based society, being a billionaire might be recognized as a form of impulse control disorder. Because you can't stop acquiring money and you're hoarding limited resources to the detriment of others. Nobody needs a thousand million dollars. Sorry, you just don't. So let's call it financial resource hoarding disorder, which is not a diagnosis that currently exists, but which, if it did, would probably be considered a subtype of hoarding disorder, which is itself a form of obsessive-compulsive disorder. If the desire to acquire financial resources leads someone to, for example, commit tax evasion, which it often does, then we can understand how this mental illness can be so severe that it causes people to commit felonies. And in fact, the behavior of capitalists has some significant overlap with the behavior of regular hoarders. 
The two main differences, I would say, are that regular hoarders hoard physical objects in their living spaces, while resource hoarders hoard currency in bank accounts, and that hoarding objects is socially constructed as gross and bad, while hoarding financial resources is socially constructed as admirable and good. When we talk about the behavior of white, hetero, able-bodied, cisgender male capitalists in this negative way, what we're doing is pathologizing it. That is, we are taking how a group of individuals acts and making it into a mental illness. And that's exactly what cisgender, straight, white, able-bodied males with medical and legal power have done throughout history to women, people of color, queer and genderqueer people, and people with disabilities. So we're just sort of turning the tables a little bit as a thought experiment in order to see what we can learn by doing so. Because if their behavior was truly pathologized, if financial resource hoarding disorder really was a diagnostic category, then one next logical step, according to the historical model laid out by the white male medical legal establishment, would be for the state to start abrogating the rights of individuals who had that mental health condition because they pose a threat to society. Because in fact, we can see how the 0.1% refusal to pay taxes, their intense lobbying efforts to pay even less taxes, their refusal to endorse a political agenda consistent with human rights and environmentalism, how all this has negatively impacted the well-being of those of us who share a country with them. In pre-contemporary times and in contemporary times, cisgender hetero white men got to violate other people's human rights and profit from it directly. These rights violations have had very real and very serious intergenerational manifestations today, which straight white males gaslight us about and tell us are our own faults. But now, any talk of correcting these historical imbalances leads to pearl-clutching around wealthy people's property rights being violated. But why are the property rights of individuals suffering from financial resource hoarding disorders attributed greater legal protection than the human rights, including to healthcare and affordable housing, of everybody else in society? It's funny how during the time periods when they had unchecked power, white men had no problem abrogating the rights of others and coming up with lots of legal justifications for it. But now that they're starting to lose power in society, the idea that their property rights could ever be impinged upon in the least is considered a form of unholy socialist devilry. But the receipts are in. Millennials are socialists. They're going to come for that money. Scandinavian levels of taxation are on the horizon for the very wealthy. The bottom line is the patriarchy has done a lousy job of managing the environment and the economy, and now there's a pressing need to claw back the money that's been stolen from the public. But let's say that the 0.1% disagreed and refused to pay their fair share. Wouldn't it be scary if, based on that unwillingness to cough up the dough, a psychiatrist diagnosed them with a mental illness, and then a court took their rights away, and then a urologist gave them all vasectomies? Fortunately, that will never happen. It's just really sad that it already has. There's a saying I'm fond of, which goes, Lord, give me the confidence of a straight white man. That is the level of confidence that we need when we talk about human rights, like the right to affordable housing and healthcare and abortion and a dignified minimum wage. The reason they've gotten away with these massive tax cuts and this environmental destruction and these violations of human rights that we see all around us when we walk around downtown Baltimore is because they've made us too ashamed to articulate real alternatives. All we seem to be able to say is how awful conservatives are, but we're not saying the things we want instead. And that's because we're afraid of being called socialists. The good news is that's changing. Young people aren't afraid of what they might get called. The battle of ideas is not over yet. Whenever you're ready, you too can pick up and fight.
You don't need to know everything about policy or economics. All you have to do is say what's true, keep your head up, and refuse to back down. One uncomfortable truth that we're going to have to reckon with is that a lot of the things that we want are not things that the leadership of the Democratic Party wants. So they're welcome to either change what they want or get out of the way. It's like Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without demand. It never has and it never will. Okay, thanks for listening to episode four of A Feminist Therapist. You can follow me on Twitter at FeministMHTX, Instagram at A Feminist Therapist, and you can email me your comments at AFeministTherapist at gmail.com. If you'd like to be interviewed for this podcast regarding the sociopolitical aspects of your mental health condition, please reach out at your convenience. If you live in Baltimore and you want to do therapy with me, please feel free to drop me a line. My name is David Averick. Thanks again and have a cool day.